Hello, welcome to the Sunflower Allotment Podcast, a podcast for anyone and everyone who's interested in allotments and vegetable growing. This episode, we have a conversation with Stephanie Hafferty that we recorded earlier on this week. And we're really feeling very privileged to bring you this conversation as it was amazing to speak to her. And this will be over two parts. The first part will talk about her gardening in general and her approach to um, maximizing production and intercropping and producing vegetables all year round. And then the second episode, which will be out later this week, will be on no dig. So yes, I mean, this is uh, when we were lucky to hear from Stephanie, Rachel, it was a, it was a fantastic recording. Yeah, she's a really inspirational woman, really interesting and insightful and enthusiastic. Um, yeah, really, really privileged to have got the chance to talk to her and hear all sorts of things. Yeah, just blown away by her knowledge and experience, I think, really. Yeah, in, in the in the recording to come, she uh, comes across as such a um, down-to-earth and resourceful and honest gardener. And yes. I found um, she was also like incredibly enthusiastic. And she said before she started recording that she'd been in the garden for 12 hours that day and yet she still yes. spoke with such enthusiasm and passion um yeah. not for uh for the best part of an hour and a half um so so yeah it was it, it, it was it was amazing really yeah yeah i'm quite excited for people to be able to um hear well hear from her and uh learn from her as we have had the privilege of doing i think yeah great well um let's uh let, let's go straight to it shall we um yeah so, um um yeah thanks again to stephanie and uh in enjoy the interview stephanie thank you so much for joining us um first became aware of you by looking at your amazing blogs online but you're also an author an expert in no dig and you've been on Gardener's world recently uh, in the end of 2022 um and yeah, we feel very privileged to have you on because you're definitely somebody who shares our worldview on gardening. And for this episode, we just wanted to ask you um, questions about production, questions about your enthusiasm for gardening, and also uh, questions about experimentation and anything at all that, that crops up, really. Um, so the first question, really, which I know is a bit of a generic one, but um, after reading your blogs, I am quite interested in it, which is um, how did you get into gardening? Um, I always liked grubbing in the mud, as my mum put it, when I was a little girl. Um, and when I was very little, I collected cacti and grew them on my bedroom windowsill. Um, so I always have liked being outside. And actually, when I was a child, I played at, um, I had Lego and Playmobil and a train set. And I played at being a grower and um, I would go off with my Playmobil fantasy me and set up homesteads all over the place on my bedroom floor. So there's always been like a pull there, which I think is books I read as a child and obviously watching The Good Life. Um, back in those days, there were, I think, only two channels on TV. So um we all watch the same programs, it's so different to now. And then I actually got into growing as um, 
in my late teens, probably around 17, when I discovered that you could grow food and make alcohol from it. <laughs> so I got into homebrew and I had a little corner of my parents' garden where I grew things that you could make wine from. And I lived in Hertfordshire at that time and there were lots of lanes where I could go foraging for things for wine. And so basically, yeah, it came down to wanting to make alcohol as a teenager. That's great. AC, I knew you would share our worldview. <laughs> That's brilliant. And then I did get into growing it for food, but the alcohol came first. I did also see and read that you um you grew for production because you said that you wanted actually just feed your family because you realized how cheap it was and I know for lots of people who listen to the podcast particularly in the last year with cost of living that's a major aspect of their growing hobbies um is is that also how you came into growing maybe on a larger scale with your homestead yeah well growing food as much as I could um definitely it was uh I got a, I rented a cottage in Northamptonshire about the time I had my daughter and I started to make a garden there and I was given a copy of Jeff Hamilton's Organic Gardening. So I followed that and then moved to Wiltshire and had, it was a semi-detached ex-council house and rural council houses in the 1920s were made with a garden that was big enough for the rural poor working poor to be able to keep chickens a pig grow fruit and grow vegetables so it was long and narrow the house was small but the garden was long and narrow and I started so this would have been 25 years ago I'm hang on just what 26 something like I work everything out on how old my daughter is so yeah actually she's nearly 29 so it would be 27 years ago but we moved there and um then just like reading the book, talking with neighbours, um, ask you know, finding out what worked well in the area and just experimenting and trying and making loads of mistakes. And I was obviously digging in those days because I was following Jeff Hamilton. It was the only way I knew. And we kept chickens and ducks and no pigs. And uh, I met... I, you know, moved on from just making alcohol to making lots of different preserves. And we were we were pretty scared. We on a low income, um, had three children. And then my husband and I separated when they were young. So I was then raising three children on my own on a low income. So a lot of it came from, you know, raising a family and being pretty skint. So it def and also with that as foraging as two to really supplement what we had. Um, and you know, it did make a big difference. It absolutely did, because there was always food coming in from the garden. Um, there were some established fruit trees when I moved there. And um, right until I left Somerset a couple of years ago which was a different house but it was a similar thing ex-council house long thin garden um just literally trying to grow as much as they possibly could things in pots on concrete areas 
And it got bigger and bigger as the children got older, because particularly if you're on your own with children, but even when I was still with their dad, um, he was out at work most of the day. So, you know, I was still on my own with with small children. Um, You know, there's only so many hours in the day and children need, you know, adults and adult attention. So as they got older and needed less attention, my garden got bigger and bigger. And then once they got big enough to go out and hang out with their mates, I got rid of our lawn and put a polytunnel on it. <laughs> so, And uh, they were quite keen on that. They were teenagers and they thought this was great because they had visions of it. This was going to be like the clubhouse for them and their mates. But I put tomatoes in it and spoilt that. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. So and then. Um, it was about 15 years ago that I got into growing as a job. So it actually then got into work as well as home life. How did that start, Stephanie? How did you start sort of growing for a job and what did that entail to begin with? Well, when I was looking for, I was running my own business from home because I was a single mum at this point and um I was always looking for work around having a family, which isn't the easiest of things. And so I was looking for a few more hours because I wasn't making enough in my at home, the business I was running from my home, which was um, crafts, making things, that kind of stuff. Uh, A lot of things from sea glass and um, which I collected. I lived near the Jurassic, well, an hour from the Jurassic coast, but I'd go and collect sea glass and make jewellery and stuff and crochet, mad flower hair things, anything, anything to make some money and had this stall that I would do in different places. And then a friend of mine mentioned that a grower nearby was looking for someone to pick salad and the hours fitted in with the family So I went there for a trial and the day I went, Gardener's World were filming. (laughs) So I'm there trying to learn how to pick lettuce. And there's all these camera crews filming. And yeah, it was really weird. So, um, yeah, so I was there for two and a half years at this market garden, ended up doing kind of all aspects of everything as you do. It was like going back to university in a way and uh, very long hours, um, very intensive. And from that, I got, because I would, I'd gone through, you know, two and a half years. So you've gone through different growing cycles. And there's a thing about how many times you repeat something before it, it, it becomes almost instinctive and then from there I because I lived in a rural well ruralish area a small market town called Bruton which now is achingly trendy it wasn't there um people heard you know and so when somebody wanted a kitchen gardener they go ask Steph the word got round very quickly so I got a job with um a, a place a private estate called Hadspen with Neil Hobhouse, who was owning it at the time. It's now the Newt in Somerset, uh, to set up an almost instant kitchen garden for a project he was doing. And then I was doing a bar garden for a local restaurant. And then I went to um, help out another private estate for 
Um, I was supposed to only go there for like three or four weeks. And I was there for three and a half years doing their kitchen garden. And that was for a theatre impresario called Sir Cameron Mackintosh. So that was, I was, my salad was eaten by like movie stars and stuff. Which, That's amazing. That's Hugh Jackman eating my salad. It's almost the same as having a snog from him. <laughs> <laughs> it must have been really interesting. So not only growing things for you and your family, but growing things for all different restaurants and different different clients who are going to use them in different ways well I say use them in different ways they're all going to get eaten aren't they one way or another but but they do use them in different ways and it is all very different so working in a market garden that was the main um the main um produce that was grown for sale the main uh, crop was salad because that has you can sell it for quite a bit of money and the area where I lived had a clientele which would could afford to pay two quid for quite a small bag of salad kind of thing. Um, when you're growing for a restaurant, it's totally different again because they're wanting certain things at certain times. The chefs don't have the time to pick in the way that I pick things here, where they'll last months and months and months. For me, they don't last that long in a busy kitchen garden for a restaurant. I used to run the kitchen garden for a Roth Bar and Grill at um, an art gallery called Hauser and Worth Somerset, which had you know, tens of thousands of visitors a year. So that had to look visually appealing because the first thing you saw was my garden. And um, so each one is very different. And I think it's helpful because I know how to do it for all these other things, but also you, a lot of the ways that you'd grow for a hotel or a restaurant or a market garden, it isn't how you grow for your family, you know, so, because you can pick and you'll eat things that are bit. Actually, that was the thing with doing the garden at um, the Cameron's garden um, was mostly the garden actually was mostly run by his partner, Michael, and they they were really good at eating holy leaves and things. So Rocket, there was flea beetle, bad flea beetle in Somerset. And so Rocket in the summer would get flea beetle to be full of holes. And if you are running a market garden, you can't sell that. And if you're a chef, you can turn it into pesto. But they didn't mind. So they wanted the flavor. They didn't care that it looked like a sieve you know, or a doily. So each one is very different. And I, it was interesting. The only problem was I'd be doing several things at once, like different jobs. And I, you know, I then realised that I hadn't sown my carrots. I'd sown everybody else's. So, because you always prioritise where you're working. You moved to Wales a few years ago to set up your homestead. Um, can you explain to us how you went about planning your new garden? Because we get lots of questions, particularly at this time of year, about uh, or from new allotment holders and about how to, how to plan. Well, yeah, and it was about this time of year. I made the first bed on March the 31st, 2021. Oh, perfect. Um, I obviously I'd done this quite a few times before. Um so I already had, if you like, like the, the plan in my head. 
and I had ordered compost. So I got the keys on Wednesday. We moved in on Friday and the compost arrived on Monday. So I'd already ordered compost so I could get going. At the same time, I was project managing a show garden and it's lockdown. So there's all these weird things going on, but it looked like this show garden was actually going to happen. It was going to be the first gardening show, um, I think, since 2020 lockdown, I think, at uh, Hampton Court. So I knew I had to get certain amount done because I was going to then be working near at Hampton Court for three and a half weeks. I wasn't going to be here. So I... I did, um, there's different ways of starting a no-dig garden. I knew I wanted to start this no-dig because that's what I do. And um, people use different depths of compost. I'm doing all of this on a budget. So I'd factored in buying in compost because obviously I've just moved from Somerset to Wales. I didn't have any compost. Um, I brought all kinds of weird stuff with me, but I couldn't bring the compost. The removal companies drew the line at that. And um, I, I had so I use a lot less compost than um, some other people recommend, um, which is a lot more economical and it does work. So we have here at the back of our house the back garden, and I thought, well, I'll start with this. And as we unpacked some boxes, I moved here with my youngest son, who was 21 at the time, and doing his finals, his like thesis for his degree from a, a bedroom in this house, which was more boxes than anything else. But I'd be unpacking some boxes and then get a few together, take the tape off, lay them down on the ground to make one bed and then empty out a load of compost five centimetres deep. And then I, I like most of my paths are about 30 centimetres wide. That suits me. It can be whatever you like. And then, you know, when I a few weeks later, I do the next bed when I had more cardboard and more time and so on. So um, and then as I got some plants and some seeds big enough, because, you know, uh, this time of year, things are just starting to go, things went in the ground. And I think, I think I'd made four beds by the time I went to Hampton Court and I went there on June the 20th. So um, in the orchard, I had different plans because I decided that I would experiment with some compost beds, but also whatever resources were in the area to try and do it at all as cheaply as possible. So certain things I didn't do in that first year, um, like I didn't do many tomatoes and things because the polytunnel didn't come till August. So um, it was the following year that I was doing more of like all the summer crops and things. So I've been using all kinds of stuff, things that I found here, old compost from that was like, hiding in a corner, um, getting to know the farmers, getting sheep stags, the pooey bit of fleece. I had to have a load of trees cut down because they were dangerous. And so that gave me wood chip, um, grass clippings, anything. See, my previous garden, I'd put a polytunnel on my lawn. So I'd had, I hadn't had grass clippings of my very own for like 10 or 11 years. So uh, yeah, 
just kept making like sometimes the bed would only be you know maybe four feet by six feet and other times it would be really big it would just depend what resources and what time I had and I just you know, just kept making it so there wasn't a plan in my mind it will look like this the only one that was this is how it's going to look was where the paths were going in the back garden um everything else and I there was only one place that the polycup tunnel would fit so that went there everything else has been kind of evolved as I got to know the land and living on a hill is different to living somewhere fairly flat but the actual rhythm of sowing and planting obviously I've been doing that for years the big difference is I'm doing it in a different location so and I, I just wanted to ask about that Stephanie because when I watched your um bit on Gardener's World it seemed that your garden was just yes. full of intercropping it was amazing it just had food everywhere absolutely everywhere and when you started your garden is that how you approached it did you just whack stuff in according to what month it was and then you just continually put stuff in and prepared for it or did you have certain beds for certain years because it it, it just feels for me for some I mean I don't have a huge amount of time with my allotment in the evening but the idea of having that continual production it's just so inspiring. Like, how did you go about doing all that intercropping and getting it all in? Um, well, it's literally that. It's something, I think it is, it's such a traditional way of growing for most like cottagers and most people growing for themselves because you are wanting to maximise the space you've got and you're wanting to produce as much food as you can. And so things that will work well for... Um, home growers might not work so well, say on a market garden scale, because you've got other people there getting in and out and picking things. But I did a lot of that at, for, the, for the chefs because they loved it because there were things on all different levels. It's, so you've got things growing on the ground and things at different heights. I grow a lot under trees because I've had to, like in my previous garden as well, I had established fruit trees. And to maximize the space, I had to grow under fruit trees and it works. You know, you wouldn't get the ripest tomatoes under there. You have to think what will be OK under this canopy in the summertime. But, um, yeah, I will. I don't worry too much about crop rotation. Um, it's important if you have something like white rot or if you have club root. Um, but for most things it's really difficult on a small scale to rotate anyway. Some people love it and fair enough, if that's your bliss, go right ahead. But with what I do, it would be pretty impossible to worry about crop rotation because I'll have, say I plant out brassicas. So let's say I'm putting out Brussels sprouts and they go quite far apart to begin with and they go in pretty small. So you've got all that space. So I'll put in between um, lots of things that will have finished before the Brussels sprouts have got really big. So it could be salads, annual herbs, chicories, depending on the time of year, um, salad, onions, spinach, lots of different things can go in. Then I'm eating those. The key thing is if as well with Brussels sprouts, I will cover them with uh, butterfly netting to protect them from 
butterflies. When I moved to Wales, I was told that because it's so rural here and there's not much, um, it, the agriculture here is mostly livestock. It's not fields of crops. Um, I was told that there's hardly any cabbage white butterflies and it's not true. There's loads. <laughs> so I use butterfly netting to protect um, my most precious brassicas. So anything that goes under has to be something that doesn't require insect pollination because the insects can't get in. So you have to have those practical things. But it just, and I like to have, even if I've got that, I'll then put flowers around the edge just to make it more interesting and diverse. And it's it's a lovely way. And then if you've got, you know, a few spare plants and you feel a bit sorry for them, you can just pop them in somewhere and give them their best shot. Um, I just wanted to ask, Stephanie, you, you noted there about sort of having flowers um, at the ends of your vegetable rows. And I noticed on the Garden of the World episode, although I don't think you spoke about it, I saw oodles of annual flowers like calendula and sunflowers. And I just wondered whether you were planting them for 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 their edibleness, so like calendulas and nasturtiums and stuff, whether it was for pollinators or whether just because you so really like flowers and whether they're part of your planning, I suppose. Um, all of it. So it depends what they are. Some I plant because they're a completely mad colour. Um, I've got some gladioli from, I think I got them from Lidl ready to go in because they're bonkers colours and I will I'm growing those just for the sheer joy um calendula I grow up for edible medicinal you can make oils all kinds of things with it um I do grow things to attract pollinators I've been particularly been gardening all day today and noticing the early flowers and the bees and everything coming out I'm also really really into flowers to attract predators because I think we hear a lot about pollinators and yeah we all want to cuddle bees and things I've got a bee called Beryl that visits my polytunnel at the moment I am convinced it's the same bee um, but I'm also really keen and one of the things I brought with me in pots were plants which will bring in predators in particular ladybirds hoverflies and my favorite wasps because if we don't have the predators, you can't get the balance between predator and prey in the garden. So the, as I will let at this time of year, if I, if I don't need the bed immediately, I will let brassicas that have gone over go to flower. The bees love it. Beryl is like really going for the brassica flowers at the moment. But crucially, it's going to attract hoverflies and wasps. Um, and that will help when I get different aphids and things, which is all part of the ecosystem. I need aphids because I am I'm surrounded by hedgerows. The hedgerows are full of small birds. And that is going to be a big part of the diet of their, their fledglings, their, their young. So um, you need to have the pests in order to feed the rest of the environment. But you don't want them to a degree that it's going to harm your plants so a lot of what I'm doing is getting the balance worked out I did lose like many people this year quite a few plants um, which should have been in my garden now um, 
when the weather got very, very cold, when we had that deep cold, it was so cold here, we didn't have water for several days, everything froze. Um, so, you know, not everything always works out, but a lot of the flowers are, some of them are because they'll flavour syrups, um, others are because I want to stick them in a vase on my desk, you know, or in the kitchen when I'm washing up. Um, and I do like a really bonkers colour, like the the most clashing. I've been, I was a child in the 1970s. You know, I wish I could show you my grandma's wallpaper. It was, but that's how my colour scheme is. <laughs> so it's, I do like going when you go to Sissinghurst and you see like the lovely white beds and all of this. I think that is so lovely. Mine's a bit clashing. That's brilliant. I know Rachel will love that. She's inspired me to put so much more colour in my garden or my allotment. I've put loads of flowers in after it being very mono green, <laughs> mostly potatoes. Well, it's so good. And, you know, and also you're not just creating a biodiversity above the soil. You're creating it below the soil with all the different plant roots. So that helps working with the soil life. It just makes you know because the when you're thinking about your growing environment it's not just what you see above it's everything that's happening below as well and I had between me and my allot I had an allotment in Somerset so the big difference for me here is all of my growing spaces around my house which is smashing I love it um but I had my except it's not sociable as an allotment that's the bit. And the, my neighbours, well, I've got human neighbours, but mostly my, the neighbours I see are sheep and they, they're not really great conversationalists. They have like one word conversation. And then, but between me and my neighbour, John, we had I planted a whole border of all different kinds of wildflowers. Um, I put spare brassicas in you know, to bolt for the um, for the predators all kinds of flowers down there. And um, we had we had all the bees, we had all the butterflies, you know, it was gorgeous. Um, obviously he agreed because it was right next to him. And then in the autumn, we just let it die back naturally. And then all the creatures that I'm enticing, the hoverflies and the ladybirds can overwinter in that, the sticks and the debris. and um, the last spring I was there in 2020, in that lockdown spring, I went up to my allotment to do some gardening, which was allowed. And um, I had to go home because it was a beautiful day and all the ladybirds had come out from where they'd overwintered and they were bonking all over my allotment. Literally, they were everywhere. <laughs> and so I would have trodden on them, had to go home and come back another day. But it shows how much it works. It was like, this is the place. This is the place for love if you're a ladybird. So that's what you need. <laughs> Everyone needs to have a little bit of their allotment for ladybird romance. Oh, brilliant. As you said, they're very social spaces, not just for us. Yeah. Yeah, it was uh, not just for us, though. <laughs> Well, thanks very much um, to Stephanie. That was super duper interesting, um, really insightful. 
really kind-hearted woman who who knows so much and has has got sort of, sort of such a rich history I think of growing things and uh, can definitely learn a lot from her and her enthusiasm yeah what what did you think Tim that was oh, great wasn't it a oh, leading was, question but it was great <laughs> yeah absolutely brilliant I, I just really I really love this part of the the podcast and how it's become not only conversations with ourselves but interviewing like these incredible experts that have so much enthusiasm and so much knowledge and yeah a couple of things in particular I picked out was just that intercropping and the the growing vegetables all year round and that's something that I'm just really not very good at I just have one section for potatoes one section for leeks and in my head that's how it works and I can look after one bit at a time yeah um but speaking to her then also seeing that gardener's world clip you can really see how she's just constantly chucking stuff in. And it reminded me a bit of my neighbour, Wendy, who just is always throwing stuff in. Um, yeah. And I wonder whether I'm just being uh, a bit safe and I need to kind of just go out, go for it a bit more and just experiment. Well, yeah, I think there's definitely something to be said for sort of almost not holding yourself back by sticking to a plan too much or, yeah, just going for it but I also think you should be kind to yourself Tim because um you're a busy man with young children and I think you do a grand job as it is so um I think St what one thing that I really enjoyed about that conversation with Stephanie was how realistic she was also about sort of uh I don't know what what we can achieve and it was wonderful because you can achieve so much with mm. the time and the effort and the energy and all of that but she was also very good I think at sort of talking about um you know just do it what you can and um if you can't do no dig if you first moved somewhere then it's better to just get the crops in the ground and sort of mm. to do what you can do or use what resources you have so yeah you should totally be you know freer to bung things in if you want to but you should also be kind to yourself and not okay. beat yourself up if you haven't done into cropping yet because yeah. i haven't done it lots either um yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no brilliant um okay well if there's any listeners who have any any questions on the back of that please feel free to email us at sunflower allotment podcast at gmail.com or you could contact us on social media at um, sunflower pod one and yes um i'm looking forward to uh, the second part which is going to be on no dig as uh, stephanie is a, a specialist in no dig has written a book with uh charles dowding on it so um that's going to be coming out in a couple of days time so uh, look out for that and yeah. Um, and yeah um thanks thanks rachel uh, thank you Tim. thanks to stephanie <laughs> and um, yeah big thanks to stephanie yeah big big thanks exactly <laughs> and um yeah have a, have a great week on the plots everybody bye-bye yeah bye